All right. Good evening. I'm Chuck Lee Master with Team Faith, and it's a pleasure to be here with you guys tonight on this beautiful, beautiful evening out here in South Carolina, a beautiful piece of property, and just can't help but uh, remember, um, oh man, I don't want to admit how many years ago it was that I was in basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and it was about this time of year, and it was beautiful, sandy dirt, and and uh, tall, beautiful green trees, and I just, uh, even though it was a hard time of my life, I just remember every morning uh, getting up uh, early enough to pull out my pocket New Testament and just read through Psalm 8, which is, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and David just goes on and gives praise to God, and that was, uh, that Psalm chapter 8 was something that just kind of sustained me through the difficulty of getting through basic training, which uh, isn't nearly as difficult as it was back in the Vietnam days, and today I'm told it's pretty easy, easier than what it was when I went in, but still, you know, you, you got men and women that are sacrificing their, their time and getting put under discipline to go through that and it's it's never easy and uh so i don't know it just something about this place kind of reminded me of that and i just i'm happy to be back here in south carolina with you guys lord thanks a lot for today thanks for uh the opportunity to be here at a race and um we say it all the time that we know that we're blessed to be here but we just want to give you our thanks for giving us the ability to be out here the resources to do what we love to do what you put in our hearts to do i pray that you will quiet us down right now in this moment and give me the words to say and just uh, challenge us and grow us and stretch us so that our faith will be the kind of faith that reaches out to this nation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, tonight, as we get into it, I know that uh, at the, at, uh, two weeks ago we got into what I was hoping was going to become a series called Foundations of Faith and talking about uh, the reason that we believe what we believe. Um, those series, they, we're going to have to stretch that series out a little bit because it takes a lot of, of uh, time to research what I want to do and do it with excellence. So tonight, we're going to take a little detour from there and uh, look at what we do with our faith where we are right now. And uh, what, I mean, what I mean by that is, of course, our faith is based on Jesus Christ being God's own Son who came down to this earth, who lived that perfect life that we have never been able to live. We've been, never been able to live up to the standard and, of course, Jesus was crucified. He took our place on the cross. And um, But while Jesus was on this earth, one thing uh, that, that historians like to argue about, and it kind of goes along with our Foundations of Faith theme, is that uh, people like to argue about was Jesus really the Son of God. First of all, if there is no God, then obviously Jesus could not be the Son of God if God doesn't exist. Jesus, therefore, was a good person. He was a good teacher. Have you ever heard that before? I know that there are a lot of people that would like to deny the deity of Jesus Christ because it's so much easier to live our life if there is no God. And if, 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 but if there's a God, then there's a chance that maybe Jesus was the Son of God. But if there is no God, well, Jesus couldn't obviously be the Son of God. And so Jesus was just a good teacher. There's a big problem with that theory, though, is that Jesus was a terrible teacher, you're looking at me like, man, you can't say that. You're in church. You can't say that Jesus was a terrible teacher. But think about it. Some of the things that Jesus taught was not the way that you would start a movement. Let me give you an example. Jesus, some of the things that he would say would be, um, love your neighbor as yourself. And we've heard all these things that Jesus have said. We've heard them over and over. We're probably blue in the face, especially if we grew up in Sunday school and church. But uh, love your neighbor. That's not really a shocking statement to say. But it's one of those things that's... Uh, it's not the kind of thing that you would say if you're a good teacher trying to start a movement. He also said, he took it a step further, he said, love your enemies. Now, how's that for you? To love your enemies looks like today, 
Well, I mean, when we talk about terrorism, when we talk about people of a different kind of faith than us, there's not always an overwhelming sense of love the way that we talk. Let me, let me bring it home. Since we last met, there was a decision made by a large corporation that has a red bullseye. <laughs> Target made a decision, a corporate decision, about their bathroom policy. And it's blown up all over Facebook. I live in the state, of great state of Tennessee. And from the great state of Tennessee, there was a preacher that went to Target and he videoed himself out in the parking lot. He said, I went in there and I talked to the manager and I found out about their bathroom policy. He has a southern drawl and, and he says, I went and talked about their bathroom policy. I said, well, that is just absurd that we would have that kind of policy today. And he goes on and on. And man, I'm agreeing with everything that he's saying. That this is stupid. This is ridiculous. I mean, well, how, can, how, can you, uh, how can you do this? His video goes viral, is what we say today. It means that more than, more than 10,000 people look at it. You know, like a million people look at this video, and it gets passed around all over the Internet. And he finally lands an interview with Neil Cavuto on Fox News. And so this pastor from Tennessee is out there talking about how terrible the Target bathroom policy is. Now, Jesus said, love your enemies. Are we thinking about that as we're thinking about Target? Well, no, of course not. I mean, because it is a ridiculous policy. But let me tell you what my take is on this. I don't often get very political, but I have to. Because I'm still going to shop at Target. You know what? I've been buying Starbucks coffee for years. And I've been to Disneyland and I've been to Disney World. And you know why? Because none of those companies have ever said that they stake a claim on anything that this book says. They've never said that they are going to surrender themselves to the authority of God. They're just a company. It's just a store. I need socks. I go buy socks. Now, there are some other companies out there that I won't endorse and I won't support their business. Larry Flint has a, a company named Hustler, and you see all the lion's den signs. I don't frequent those places. I don't want those people to have any part of my money. Matter of fact, there are some big-time sponsors, even in our kind of world, some energy drink sponsors, that every time I go to a Supercross or an Arena Cross, they have girls very scantily clad that I feel like they are trying to take me off of my path of my moral, you know, my, my moral, um, well, my beliefs. I want to be a Christian who honors God. I want to save myself from marriage with a woman, you know, that one woman uh, kind of thing. And I feel like there are some people in our industry that are trying to actively pull me out of that. So I don't give them my money, but I don't tell you not to do that because that's a personal conviction that I have. But if you wanted to go visit Larry Flint's store, I would have to say that's a terrible idea. Okay, because I, you have told me that you want to hold yourself under the authority of the Word of God. And so I now have a standard to hold you to. Uh, you have a standard to hold me to. But when it comes to Target and their ridiculous bathroom policy, I just kind of have to think about one of those things that Jesus said, love your enemies. And then I think about that guy in Tennessee who's going off about how stupid Target is. And he started a movement. And when you think about it, that's how movements happen. I don't care what your politics are, but think about the Tea Party movement. It's a bunch of people that have an ideology, and they come together, and they come together with one accord on what they believe, and it starts a movement. Jesus, when he is on this earth, people like to say, well, he started a movement. And yet everything that you read about in the history of Jesus, as we refer to them as the Gospels, Jesus was not starting a movement. And we're going to look at a little bit of tonight. Jesus, other things that he said was, uh, if someone asks you for your coat, give them your shirt also. 
well, that's kind of a bizarre thing to say. That's not how you start a movement, because that ain't fair. That's not right. That doesn't make sense. The difficult things that Jesus would say, and we can't wrap our heads around it all, we can't always figure it out. One thing that he said was pay your taxes. Man, that Tea Party movement again, it didn't happen because somebody said, you ought to pay all your taxes and then some. It's because they said not to. And yet Jesus says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And then Jesus said something really, really bizarre in John chapter 6 that we're going to take a look at tonight. And um, my son, my 10-year-old, he asked what we're going to talk about tonight. And I said, we're going to talk about vampires and zombies. He's like, no, you're not. I said, well, what do vampires eat? Blood. He said, what do do zombies eat? He's like, brains. Well, there's a time that Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. So that's how we're talking about it tonight. (laughs) Because that's a bizarre statement. You know, there's the... You ever see those preachers that really connect the thin dots? I think I just did it. (laughs) But Jesus, when he was here, he said some crazy things. And so here's how that story goes down. He, uh, He he's out there with his twelve disciples. And the thing that you need to understand, in order to put things into context, we need to understand how things operated back uh, two thousand years ago in the first century, when uh, when a a rabbi, a teacher, was uh, going around. Jesus was known as a rabbi, a good teacher, he's often referred to. They would have a following of people that would just follow them and travel with them. We know that Jesus had 12 disciples, right? And we could probably name a few of them. There's Matthew, and there's John, and there's Philip and Andrew. And you know, we, we know that there's a handful, there's these 12 guys that followed Jesus around. But the way that it actually worked was that there was probably a huge following of Jesus. 50 people, 100 people. We don't know how many people there were, but there were people that would follow Jesus that he did not say, you come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. There were those 12, but then there were a whole bunch more that would follow Jesus. And they're often referred to as disciples, not the disciples. And so we'll make a distinction about that as we go through John chapter 6. And so John, uh, so Jesus is with his 12 disciples and the crowd, and he's on top of a mountain and uh, he's teaching. And a large crowd gathers. And this is the, call, the feeding of the 5,000. Because there comes a time when uh, Jesus says, um, we need to feed the crowd. Or the disciples say to Jesus, we need to feed the crowd. Jesus is like, will you feed them? And Philip's like, well, we don't have 200 days worth of wages wouldn't feed these crowds. Tell them to go home and get some food. And then Jesus says, is there anybody here that has anything to eat? And Andrew says, well, there's a kid here. He's got uh, five loaves and two fishes. Well, bring them to me. And Jesus starts passing out the bread and the fish. And, and all 5,000 people get fed, and there's 12 baskets of food left over, one for each of the disciples. Pretty amazing thing. Matter of fact, it's so amazing because this had probably never been done before. If you think about it, modern-day refrigeration wasn't invented until about 2,000 years after Jesus was there. So there wasn't a way to feed 5,000 people at one time. There had probably never been a gathering of thousands of people that ever got to eat at one time in the history of the world until this actually happened. So it's pretty significant. What happens next is Jesus dismisses the crowd. He goes up on the mountain to pray. He sends his 12 disciples into a boat. says, cross over the Sea of Galilee. They're like, aren't you coming? He's like, I'll catch up with you. And he goes off to pray. The disciples are out there rowing and rowing and rowing, and nothing happens. They're not getting anywhere. There's a strong wind. And this is the story of Jesus walks on the water. They're like, whoa, it's a ghost. And Jesus said, no, fear not, it is I. And Peter's like, well, if it's you, Lord, command me to come out of the boat and walk to you. He says, it is so. Come on out. And Peter walks out on the water. Of course, he sinks. Jesus lifts him up. Why did you have such little faith? There's that whole story that we've probably all heard a hundred times before. And then, as soon as Jesus gets into the boat, John, who's recording the the, uh, story for us in the Gospel of John, says that as soon as Jesus is in the boat, they are at their destination. Meanwhile, back over here, 
on this side of the Sea of Galilee, the crowd wakes up in the morning, and they're hungry. They're like, hey, where's that guy that fed us last night? That was really cool. Jesus, where is he? And they can't find Jesus. And so finally, some, some fishermen show up, and they're like, well, we know that there was only one boat here last night. We saw the 12 get into it. We know Jesus wasn't in it, but we can't find him. And so they start piling into the boats that are arriving, and they row across the Sea of Galilee over to Capernaum, and there they find Jesus. They're like, how'd you get over here? Well, never mind. How about that breakfast? What you got for us today? And Jesus says, if I feed you again, you're just going to get hungry again. And this is when he starts getting into some of, the, some of the weird things. He says, the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Kind of a strange statement, almost as if he came down from heaven. And the people aren't quite getting it. They're like, no, I'm not really connecting that dot, but if you've got good bread from heaven, we'll take some of that. And Jesus says, I am the true bread. They're like, no, you're not. We know your parents. We know where you grew up. And so Jesus, he, he explains a little bit more. Instead of trying to explain that, hey, guys, this is an analogy, it's like he just ratchets it up, like he wants it to get uncomfortable. And at first, when you first read this passage, you're like, uh, Jesus is just really trying to really trying to, to, to get on their nerves. I think he's just like trying to poke them with a stick a little bit, but, uh, but that's actually not what he's doing at all. He is saying this to make them uncomfortable. Indeed, he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood... And at this point, they're like, ugh, that's just awkward. Okay, we asked you for a little bit of bread, and you're talking about eating flesh and drinking blood? That doesn't make any sense. They're thinking of a miracle, and instead, Jesus starts talking about this weird stuff. Now, in a year, a year later at Passover, when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, his 12 disciples, he again, so you remember, he said, this bread is my body, and this, this uh, wine is my blood do this in remembrance of me, and that's where we have communion from. We take, the, we take the grape juice or the wine, and we take the cracker or the bread, and we say, okay, we do this in remembrance of Jesus and his broken body and the blood that he shed is, is our salvation, and I am remembering his gift to me as I partake of this. It makes sense to us because we're 2,000 years the other side of the cross. But in the very first century before Jesus had even died, even what he said in the upper room didn't make any sense to the people that he said it to. Do this and remember to me, wine and bread, my flesh, my blood. That sounds like something you said a year ago over in Capernaum, and nobody understood what you were talking about. And so as the story goes over in Capernaum, he said, Jesus says, whoever does this has eternal life. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have eternal life. How do I get to heaven? Have a bite of Jesus. <laughs> like, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. See, Jesus is saying, he's like, you get there through me. But he uses very, very strange language. He says, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And he goes on and on. As you read through John 6, it is an uncomfortable conversation. And so the crowd gets real nervous. Actually, John explains in verse 60, he says that many of his disciples, not the disciples, but many of the people that had been following him for a long time, said, and this is an understatement, said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's a hard teaching. I don't really know what he is talking about. And so the 12 are watching the crowd and the crowd starts to dissipate and they start to leave. This is a hard teaching and they start to filter away. And the 12 that are watching this, the 12 that Jesus called and said, you follow me, they're watching this. And it's significant. The crowd is a very, very significant thing 
Because why else would you do ministry? Why am I here if not for you guys? I mean, I want to see a crowd around here to hear about Jesus. That's why I do ministry. That's why I come to these races is to share the gospel of Jesus and to tell you about God's love. And so I want to tell it to more people. And obviously, that's what the disciples are thinking in the first century. They're like, Jesus, you had a good thing going, but the crowd, you're pushing them away, this flesh, this blood thing. You're kind of, you're kind of um, well, you're fighting against yourself here because they're leaving. You need to reel them back in. Furthermore, the crowd is what was insulating the disciples from the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. It was eventually, if you recall, when Jesus was crucified, they had to go to one of the disciples, Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And the reason that it, the betrayal, it wasn't that they didn't know who Jesus was, even though they didn't have you know Instagram with pictures of him. They never had a chance to find him apart from the crowd. They needed an insider to say, where is he going to be and when is he going to be there? And Judas, for 30 pieces of silver, said, I'll tell you where, and betrays him with a kiss. This is the man. Gives him a kiss. No crowds to say, don't do this to Jesus. So as the crowds are leaving, the disciples are like, well, there goes the insulation. There goes the ministry. What is this guy doing? And so as the crowds are starting, uh, the, the crowds are starting to leave, the disciples are watching. And in verse 61, this is great, because Jesus knows that the disciples are complaining among themselves, he says to them, does this offend you? This whole conversation of eat my flesh and drink my blood, does, does, this, does this offend you? Does it cause you to stumble? Does it cause you to doubt what we're doing here? Especially, especially as you see the crowds leaving. This isn't what you expected. Does this offend you? It's a defining moment in Jesus' uh, ministry because the very next verse says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of those people that had been following Jesus and hanging on to his every miracle. Man, did you know? Did you see that the other day? The blind man who had never seen anything a day in his life was able to see. The lame man, he jumped up and he walked. The 5,000 people got fed. That was a pretty cool moment. From that moment on, though, many of those followers no longer followed Jesus. And so the 12 are sitting there, and they're thinking, well, what are we doing here? Because I thought this Jesus, number one, I thought he was the Messiah, and a Messiah would rally up a movement, and a Messiah would conquer Rome. I thought he was getting ready to set up his government, and us being the 12, we're probably going to have important roles in that government, but what he's doing is pushing the crowd away. This isn't really what I signed up for. You see, Jesus, I love this because he knows their hearts. It's like Jesus, anytime you ever ask a question, it's kind of like uh, that first principle of being a lawyer is never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Well, it seemed like Jesus always knew the answer, and he would ask the question because he knew the answer. And so he turns to them, and uh, knowing their hearts, he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? And they're so, they're busted because that's exactly what they were thinking. Like, man, this ain't working out for me anymore. This following Jesus is no longer convenient. Matter of fact, this following Jesus is going to cost from this day forward. This following Jesus is no longer about receiving. It's about giving. It's no longer easy. It's become hard. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus says to them. You know, when I signed up for ministry, 
for doing this thing with Team Faith. I had, I had had a good corporate job. I was working for Yamaha and had been working for Yamaha for about 10 years, about nine years actually. And uh, God had done an amazing thing in my life back in 2006. And so 2008, I came around to GNCC and started racing. 2009 is when I first started doing ministry on GNCC. And we used to meet over at the uh, Yamaha truck on Saturday and Sunday morning at 8.30 in the morning. And um, I would pull in on, on uh, Friday nights or, you know, early Saturday morning. And we'd have a, a little, you know, sometimes it would only be six or eight people over there at the Yamaha truck. But I said, man, this is exactly what I know that God called me to do. I am supposed to do this. And within a year, in 2010, Yamaha had some corporate restructures and I got laid off. And it was just, I wasn't offended at all because I'd been praying about it for a long time about, Lord, I really want to serve you in a full-time capacity with Team Faith. If you would make the way, if you would make the door open, I would step through it. And so when Yamaha called me and said, hey, we're going to have to lay you off, they thought that I was off my rocker because I started laughing. It's like, yeah. <laughs> this is what I've been praying for. This is great. So I, walk, I came into Team Faith uh, in full, a full-time capacity. It was pretty cool because when I left Yamaha, they gave me a severance package, and I had some money to, to live on. And so for the next five years, um, I had raised some support and was just living – uh, a lot more frugally than I did with, with having a nice, cushy corporate job with Yamaha. and um, But it was hard. Man, it was really, really hard. It seemed like, I, I can't, I've lost track of the number of times I was broke down on the side of the road because my vehicle was old and wore out and had more miles on it than we could count. And it, it would, like, the shuttle bus I used to drive would eat tires about every 5,000 miles. So I would replace that one and then that one. And it was just like this, this uh, merry-go-round of tires that I was going through every year. And um, there were just days that it was so hard. And then, of course, I, you guys know I took on a job last year, and now I've got a full-time position, and it's harder still. I'm just wearing myself out. You know, I drove from Memphis to home Thursday night and then worked a full eight hours and got here last night at 11 o'clock. I'm like, man, I am so tired. It's like I have to give more than I receive if I want to look at it that way. And Jesus is saying, you do not want to leave also do you? It's like that teenager who graduates from high school, which we're coming up on graduations right now, and gets to go to college for the first time. Maybe they've lived in that sheltered life. Now they get to go to college and they find out about beer and girls. You do not want to leave too, do you? What about that marriage? It seems like being a Christian blocks a lot of people it's just a tough marriage. Like, I'm sticking it out because that's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian, but it sucks. You do not want to leave too, do you? And that's the question that Jesus poses to the 12 people that he called out of the crowd. Individually, one by one, you follow me. And he's looking at them, and he's saying, you don't want to leave too, do you? And they're like, ooh, that's exactly what we were thinking. But you remember that one, that one disciple, when you think about the disciples, the first name that comes to mind is a guy named Peter, because he's always the first one to speak up. And his mouth is usually running about 10 miles an hour faster than his brain. And he says things, and you're like, Peter, that's just kind of dumb. The Mount of Transfiguration, well, hey, we ought to, we ought to uh, make up some tabernacles for you, Lord. And, you know, he speaks without thinking all the time. Is that you, Jesus? Well, command me to come out of the boat, and I'll walk on water. Next thing you know, he's singing, help me, Lord. <laughs> I love Peter because my brain is working or my mouth is working faster than my brain most of the time too. But on this occasion, 
Jesus asked Peter, he, says, he asked the 12 disciples, you do not want to leave too, do you? And there's got to be this long, it's, it's written in, in black and white, but as you read it, you just realize there's probably this long pregnant pause of just complete silence, like, oh, yeah, but, and Peter speaks up. And he asked the question. He asked the right question. He says, to whom shall we go? You don't want to leave too, do you? Where else am I going to go? And he goes on, for you alone have the words of eternal life. You see, we've been hanging out with you, Jesus. We've been walking with you, and we've seen these miracles, and we know that the mere person, a good teacher, can't do these things that you're doing. We don't understand what you're doing right now, and this whole flesh and blood and, and zombies and vampires thing, that doesn't make any sense at all to me. But where else am I going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I can go back to the bottle, but I know where that goes. I personally have been there. I can go back to chasing girls, but I know where that goes. I can go back to having fun in the moment and being empty for the rest of my life. Or I can stick with you because you alone have the words of eternal life. You alone are the one that has made the difference in my life and changed me from who I was. Where else am I going to go? You see, maybe you've heard this before, but 80% of our kids who grow up in church, by the time they go to college, they never go back to church because they find that there's so many other places that they can go. But they never know where it leads them to because nobody's ever told them. We've never sat down and examined this passage. This is one of those awkward passages of flesh and blood. Weird. But seriously, who else are you going to go to? Where else are you going to go? Because intellectually, we can look at this with our minds and say, you know, yeah, I know I never want to be a drug addict. I know I never want to be an alcoholic. I know I never want to be one of those guys. I know I never want to be like that. But then, when it comes up to making our daily decisions, we never look at it as the... as as that kind of decision that this is the one who gave his very own flesh and blood for me. Now, who else? Where will I go? To whom shall I go? You see, I, most of the time I just always get caught up in my questions. I don't understand Christianity. I don't understand why God does what he does and why he doesn't do what he doesn't do. But let me tell you something. I have never met a Christian who says, you know what? I asked God to answer all my questions, and then I would become a Christian, and now here I am. And I've never met a Christian who said, now I know everything. I don't have any questions. Every question that, every Christian that I've ever met says, I have questions. And the disciples had questions in that moment, too. They surely didn't know what was going on. Right up to the very moment that Jesus was hanging on the cross, they had questions. Jesus constantly saying, I'm not going to die. Or Jesus saying, I am going to die. And the disciples are like, no, you're never going to die. You are going to rise up. You're going to conquer Rome. We're going to be your governors. It's going to be awesome. You've got to embrace this vision, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I am going to die. On the very night, that, uh, the very last night that Jesus was on this earth, he pulls his disciples into the upper room. And he says, uh, in this world, you will have many trials. You will have many troubles. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Rah! Awesome! Jesus has overcome the world. In a matter of hours, he was dead. And the world had overcome him. And the disciples had no idea what to do next. The disciples, all 12, 12 of them, the 11 remaining, the one who had betrayed him already, the 11 remaining, they run and they hide. 
And finally, Peter and John muster up the courage to go to the crucifixion. And Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. The third day, the tomb is empty. And they're like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And they still don't know what to do about it. Finally, Peter, our favorite subject, he says, I'm going fishing. I don't know what else to do. I'm going back to what I was doing before this whole thing started. I'm going fishing. And on that beach, when Jesus says, hey, cast your net on the other side of the boat, and they draw in all the fish, and John looks at Peter and says, it is Jesus. And Peter jumps out of the boat, and he swims to shore and has this conversation with Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, there is a time that I told you that you were going to be the rock, and on the rock I will build my church. The game plan is still on. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Go do what I told you to do. Go do what I created you to do. The disciples, they still didn't get it. It was on the day of Pentecost, 40 days later, when the Holy Spirit came down, we see a completely new set of disciples. They go, out, they go forward with boldness and courage. They stand up in the synagogues. They stand up in the courts. And they start saying, Jesus, the one that you crucified, God raised him from the dead. He was indeed the Messiah. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin. Whole new purpose in life. I don't know what you're going through. Sometimes I don't even understand why I'm going through what I'm going through. But I do know that God has a purpose for everything that's happening in our lives. It's not that God causes bad things to happen. That terrible marriage, those questions that you have that are unanswered, I don't know. But I do know that if you'll stick with Jesus, he'll see you through. might not get all your questions answered. You might still have some some head-scratching moments about flesh and blood and weird things. But I can guarantee you that there's a peace that comes with serving Jesus. And I challenge you with that tonight. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the difficult things that Jesus said that only make sense in light of the cross and in light of the resurrection. I pray that that power that, uh, that, that you gave your son on this earth, I pray that we will embrace it for, for our eternal salvation and that in so doing, you will move in our lives and you will change us from who we are to who you want us to be. We love you and we look forward to serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great race tomorrow if you're racing. And uh, if you need me, I will be here.